This morning, as the text has been read for you, as we continue through Hebrews, you notice we will not be doing a Father's Day message this morning. Men can man up. Get over it. You're the head of your household and take it seriously. Sermon summarized. All right. To the need of this hour, particularly within this particular text. The need is we tracked through the warning of chapter 10. And then beginning at, at, at the conclusion of chapter 10 there, and we looked at his encouragement last week to a people who certainly are in need of an encouraging word. As we consider those within the congregation, those who have uh, the numbers that have depleted through those who have deserted the congregation and their heartbreak for the language they're hearing of severity regarding those who do desert, 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 as in eat. And the heartbreak that then comes, and as the apostle seeks pastoral encouragement to them, um, we tracked last week. He identifies particularly here at the end of chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 12, where chapter 11 lands right in the center of that. There is a particular need now that he speaks to the church. You have need of this. And I want to encourage you in a way whereby you will achieve this. And the need of this hour that this particular chapter 11 text provides is a need for endurance. You have a need for endurance. I can can see it in your eyes. I can see it in the situational context we find ourselves. I can see it in the pressure that is coming down and, and the What's that causing among the people of God to do? Act and react. You have a need right now in this hour, pastorally, he says, for endurance. I want to show you how that's kind of a rough frame of how we can best handle chapter 11 right here is this frame within which it is found or upon which it hangs. And that is, look as we address this particular need from chapter 11, which is his point with chapter 11 to address a particular need for endurance. Look at verse 35 of chapter 10. As he ends his encouragement there, as he's continuing, he says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence. And again, we we ended last week with what, what brothers and sisters in Christ ought do for one another, and that is remind them of who they are in Christ. That's verse 39. This is who you are. We're not that. We're this. And yet the frame that is structuring chapter 11 is there in verse 36. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then look at how that then from that that need of endurance, he's going to begin to shape his pastoral wisdom and insight and encouragement to the congregation. You have this need, and here is my attempt to provide you with that which you need, endurance. And uh, through chapter 11, then notice chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. We'll, we'll, We'll get there through chapter 11 to know that's how chapter 11 is serving us. Endurance. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And therefore, since all of that, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, this, you have need of endurance, and then in chapter 12, therefore let us run with endurance. Chapter 11 is right there in between to help us do that. Endure. Find strength for our race. Why say all of that? Well, multiple reasons. One quick reason is because sometimes we can come to chapter 11 and it's helpful, but we need to be careful. In chapter 11, sometimes we can come right there at verse 1. If you notice, now faith is, and then boom, we would draw an equal sign and say, this is the definition of faith. But if we, but if we think of it in context of, of what the need is for the hour and how he's encouraging us to run with endurance, we find that certainly these parts of faith, or these statements regarding faith, are parts of faith, but it is not the sum total definition of all that faith is. Right? So we won't come to number one and say, if I was to ask you, what is the definition of faith? You would quote verse one. You say, those are components of faith, but not a strict theological, biblical definition of faith. This, this is it. This is its sum total. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As in, that is the definition biblically offered of faith. It's helpful. They're parts, but it is not the sum total definition of all that faith is. In other words, it is working within a context to achieve a purpose. That is, that you might endure. Something to keep in mind then, along the road of endurance. And this will come into play at the end. So I kind of set you up for it now. Something to keep in mind here as we read chapter 11. Perhaps you've read chapter 11 multiple times. Perhaps you've studied it multiple times. I hope that each of us, as we come to chapter 11, keep this in mind. That those present here within this text, that is often referred to as the hall of faith, right? And we see, and we, and we see these who are the so great a cloud of witnesses. So as we approach this text, something to keep in mind is that those here within this text are awful, also sinful people. That's something to, to key, on, key in on right away as he speaks to you about endurance and he shows you those who live the life of endurance. How do you take what you read and who you are in reading and find endurance? By pure mimic? Wait, time out. I must remember, as I gaze upon the saints of old, in their life of endurance, that they are nonetheless also sinful people. They are actually, as I, as I plummet the redemptive historical stories, and I look at the events of these individuals, and Noah, who condemned the whole world in saving his family, I must remember that he is also less than exemplary in all matters of his life. I must remember that. 
as I plummet the stories here. I remember that many of these characters, in fact, every single one of them, was clearly beset by various weaknesses. In other words, they are just like you and me. What justified them is what justifies us. So it's not like here's me and mine, and there's them and theirs, and they are justified or they are approved because of this and them. And then if I could just so, we recognize, wait a minute. The approval of God upon them is, came by the same means that it comes to me. They are like me and I am like them, beset by various weaknesses. If we approach the text this way, we will immediately recognize together for the next couple of weeks that the emphasis of the text, the, 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 the anchor point of the text is much more so upon God who is faithful rather than upon individuals proving themselves faithful. This has been the thrust of the entire book to this point. That God is faithful in keeping his covenant. This, the great statements of a covenant of grace, I will be your God and you will be my people. How will this be performed? By me. It will be bore out that that was not achieved because of the faithful endurance of the saints, but it will be bore out because of the faithful commitment of God. This bridges the text from them to me, from them to you. This is what bridges it. What do I mean specifically? What links this text, chapter 11, to me as I gaze upon the hall of faith, these individual redemptive stories, as I gaze upon them, what, what links this story to me? What is it? It is our shared faith in the God who justifies upon the merits of Christ. That is our shared union with the saints of old. This is also consider a formula for how to read our Old Testament text. Have you ever thought, how do I, in, in, in reading the stories, and reading the narrative, is the type of literature that's here in the Old Testament and as I'm reading it and I'm seeing these heroic acts, and I'm going to be reminded of, of, of many of them in, in, as we look at them in the next week or so. How am I to bridge in my reading this old covenant individual in their acts and their life and, and what God is doing there with me? How, how do I merge the two? How do I make sense of this in an applicational effort? How do I do so? How do I read the Old Testament? Here is a wonderful example of how to read it. Where the accent is rightly placed, the anchor of the text is God and His faithfulness to His people. 
This is what I'm reading in the Old Testament text. And that is true there through that saint in those works. And guess what I now know to be true? These things are true here, and they're grounded in God. Guess what? He doesn't change. So what is true of him here is true of him here. That bridges me to the text. Not mimicking behaviors. Purely. Not as though to say there are no examples. We'll address that as we go. But our primary grasping of meaning from these stories or these events is not the accent upon the faithful saint, but the accent is upon God who is faithful to the saint. That's the accent point. That will cause you, as it caused them, to endure. You have a need of endurance. Let me show you a picture of your God. How he has worked. And let me recount for you how Abel still speaks. Let, let me, in other words, what occurred there is grounded in God who does not change and works here. That's the link. God is faithful to his people. He is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. Remember chapter 6 is, how can we, how can we embrace the, the promises set before us in the Abrahamic covenant? How can we embrace that, that, that truth of grace, that he will be our God, we will be his people? How can we embrace that? Because God's, it is built upon God's unchangeable character, built upon his unchangeable purposes. He does not change. That's what this call to endurance is about. The accent is upon God. This answers one more thing by introduction. The original historical situation, right? Remember, uh, there's desertion. They're leaving. And so he is calling them, as he has been throughout the book, to gaze upon God in Jesus Christ. He's doing so here yet again. The confusion, should I, should I turn? Should I turn and leave? Should, is it just as sufficient for me to be in the ministry uh, of the temple complex as it is to, cry, to come by Christ as my high priest? Is it just as sufficient? Should I just neglect Christ and go over here? In chapter 11 then, he is calling them to the consistency of the same God that their forefathers did also worship. The object of, of Abraham's faith, the object of Moses' faith, the object of all the people of God is the same. The same God who is the object also of your faith, Jesus Christ. He's not calling them in a, in a, in a, in a, a place of worry and, and desertion. He's not saying, no, 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 remember, what about your forefathers? Be like them. He, he is pointing them to the object of their forefathers' faith. This isn't new. This isn't radical. This isn't something that was not present in the Old Covenant. 
In fact, let me rehearse for you how this same God works so faithfully in your forefathers. This same God. So he's drawing them not to their forefathers as much as he's drawing them to the God of their forefathers as their God also in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the accent of the text is where? On God who is faithful. Because we all have a need for endurance beset by many weaknesses. That's not new. That was present in the Old Covenant too. How have the people of God always endured? By having the same object of their faith. God. He has proven time and time again to be faithful. And you can witness His faithfulness in these various events. No, the accent's upon their It's upon Him being faithful to them. And He will be faithful to you. You have a need for endurance, so let's rehearse some endurance. That's the effect of chapter 11. However, I have just one, one thing I'm going to attempt to achieve this morning. Just one. And that is, I hope for the next couple of minutes together, what we'll do in verse 1 and 2. I was originally planning on going all the way to verse 7, but you know how things get. We're just going to do 1 and 2. But we'll get there. Because I really just, I, I want to I lay the groundwork with one step that we need to make this morning through the text of chapter 11 with verse 1 and 2 in grasping this. I want to, one and only one, describe a faith that endures. That is my attempt this morning, that through this text, what we will be looking at is a description of a faith that endures. This is what we'll attempt to sketch together. Because again, why? Why? Well, one, because that's what the text is doing, and two, because you're like the people in the text. In fact, you are right now the people of the text. You have a need of endurance. So do I. So, from this text, let's sketch a faith that endures, that we might by grace lay hold and endure. So the program to how we will get to describing, or how will we, what is the method for how we will describe a faith that endures? I have two large pieces that I would like to construct, and then a few smaller pieces we'll throw in there, just for salt and pepper's sake. But there, there are two larger pieces that we need to work on and then fill in these smaller. All of these pieces then will come together, I hope, to do the one thing that we're attempting to do, and that is sketch a faith that endures. Piece number one. Can I start with my first large piece of describing a faith that endures? Piece number one. A faith that endures possesses assurance and conviction. It possesses it. 
right? So, so we're, we're owning the text statement. We're just not saying that it is a strict and sole definition of all that faith is. We're recognizing it within its context to grasp that a faith that endures, because that's my need. My need is of endurance. So I'm directed by the, uh, by the apostle to a faith that endures. Does this, Adam? Does this, Redeemer? Does this, Believer? Always has and always will. A faith that endures possesses assurance and conviction. That's what it possesses. It, it, it has as, as its makeup an element of assurance and conviction. Notice how, verse 1 and 2. Now, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? Faith operative in endurance, because we already know that's what he's addressing, is the need for endurance. So a faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You'll note quickly, very quickly, what's hoped for. Um, These abstract things that 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 I have no sense of, and I'm just hoping for a brighter day? No, 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 no. Notice what you're hoping for is located in verse 36. What's been promised. You're familiar with the promises of God that He has made to you. Are you not? And, and you're hoping for them to come home. So it's not, I'm hoping, as in a broad category of no concrete, measurable, uh, laying hold of anything, I'm just in the idea of hope. No, I, I'm specifically banking on what I know in the mind and have read to be offered and given, and that is the promises of God. So, now a faith is the now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You're sure of them. The conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Now we would in in my measure, we would get a bit off track if we started to tear out through defining assurance and then coming back and saying how conviction is different than assurance. So that assurance is having this. And conviction is rather having that. And faith is the, a, a, a perfect mixture of these distinct and uh, separable things. And therefore, if we could find out what the word assurance means, we would be empowered to find out that the term meant, and now we know assurance is, and we know conviction is. Let's just take a deep breath. Maybe me the most. I think, I, think we can, I think we can arrive at something much more simple than that, yet profound. That if you look at the text, consider with me, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice how those things are actually not distinct, but they're working together. So that conviction... is confirming the assurance that they're working together. You're assured. You're assured in a manner of being convicted. It's not you either have assurance or conviction, or you have both, or you... That's what it is. You are a person that is convinced. 
And the things that are hoped for are the things that are not yet seen. Those aren't separate things. So you're hoping on something and then something else is unseen. The hoped for and not seen are the things that are related together. In other words, if I could just kind of, now that I've thoroughly confused you, let me draw you to this simple expression I think that is here in verse 1. That though the blessings promised, this is the language of your endurance. This is who you are in Christ. That though the blessings promised, right, of verse 36, are not yet revealed. This is where we are. The man or woman of faith is convinced of their reality. That's what it's trying to say. The man or woman of faith, this person who, their faith is possessing assurance and conviction. In other words, they are convinced that though these things not yet be tangibly present, a man or woman of faith is utterly convinced of their reality. Perhaps you're at this place in your own heart. I know it's an, it's, it's a, it's a, and it's an examining text as we consider it. Maybe we ask, How can one be so resolute in the face of such uncertainty? How can this be? When things seem to be going this direction, but the promises are established in that direction, how can I, feeling pulled in this direction, be utterly convinced despite my circumstances? That the promises are real, genuine, and will be absolutely delivered. How can I be? Pastor, give me a word. Give me something here that bridges me to that kind of steel disposition and the promises of God. Here am I, and I want to be like this. How do I get from this to this, how? How can I, how can I be, how can, let me help. How can this be? Because, the answer is this, because, and this will bear out through the text, ultimately, faith is not in an outcome. It is in a person. That's how. That is, I jotted down real quickly as I was considering this. I thought, so I caveat this by saying I jotted it down quickly. But right, think for a moment with me. My faith is not in an outcome. 
ultimately, it is, I mean, I trust these outcomes that have been promised to be achieved, but ultimately, we're talking about an end, an end, an absolute end. It's just planted there. In outcomes, no. Are you believing in those outcomes? Yes, but are you planted as the end of everything is an outcome? No. It's in a person. In other words, are you... Is your faith in a kingdom? Or in a king? Right? Those two things relate, but they are different. Do I want particular outcomes? Am I embracing the outcomes and waiting upon them to come? And therefore, when circumstances seem like I'm a long ways from them, do I doubt those from happening? No. Why not? It looks on face value like these ideals are not going to occur. You're going that way. Life has you going that direction. Providence is steering you here. And the promise is over there. And you're looking back like, no. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're you're not doing that. Certainly, you have a need of endurance. So it's not like, hey, I don't mind how life takes me. And I don't mind how anything unravels. I'm totally, that's not true because you have a need of endurance. So do I. So how can we not feel like, no, and we can feel, even though it's pulling us this way, we can have a sense of conviction. Because, ultimately, my faith is not in an outcome. It is in a person. Who then, as the king, sets up the kingdom. He is the object of my faith, not outcomes. Because with him, I'm guaranteed his outcomes. The object of my faith that can give me a sense of steel, though I'm drifting, is a person. And that is the endurance call here that then kind of continues. If, if you could, just go back with me to Second Timothy, if I could. Um, quickly uh, show you how this is uh, demonstrated in the apostle. I just saw an interesting example here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, quickly, of how this is demonstrated in, in, in Paul's language. You'll notice the distinction between circumstances that, that do change, that do get intense, yet what is he banking on? Where, where is his faith ultimately resting? Certainly, outcomes are a part of that, but not the object Notice chapter uh, 1 there be, uh, with verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12, Second Timothy. Which is why I suffer as I do. So look at the context of the setting as he's speaking to Timothy. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. Notice how the anchor of his faith is then described. For I know whom I have believed. Right? So, so though trial and tribulation come, though I'm feeling squeezed and have need of endurance, I know not the outcome in which I have hoped. It comes with it. But the object of my faith is Him whom I have believed. And I am convinced. I have this assurance and this conviction. I am convinced that He, the object of my faith, He, the person, the king, the redeemer, the Lord, 
He is able. I'm convinced He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Back in our text then in Hebrews chapter 11, again, how can I be so resolute though I suffer, though I have temptation, though I have trial, though I have dry and weary days? How can I be assured, convicted? Because ultimately my faith is not in an outcome but in a person. This brings us to the large piece number two. So piece number one, and then piece number two, and then at piece number two, I want to fill in a little bit of detail. Piece number two is, again, piece one, a faith that endures, possesses assurance and conviction. In other words, it's convinced of its reality. Secondly, a faith that endures receives approval. This is a sketch of a faith that endures. A faith that endures, a further description or a sketch of it, faith that endures, receives approval. So, faith's possession, faith's commendation. A faith that endures is approved. I want to show you in verse number 2. As he, as he describes now faith and by it, in other words, the means of faith at work. Number 2, or verse 2, sorry. For by it, so we're still operating on faith as which he's described, that which they are convinced of these realities. For by this convincing conviction, this assurance, this faith, the people of old receive their commendation. Term their commendation, perhaps your English translation also gives you approval or its different uh, range of meanings there. That, that That is the idea, a commendation or For by it, that is faith, uh, this faith that is convinced, the people of old in the exercising of that faith receive their approval or their commendation. And that's what a faith that endures has. It has this approval that is part of it. I want to carefully note two specific things regarding faith's commendation or approval. This is why we didn't make it to verse number 7. Because we need to take a a little time out here in exploring verse number 2 just for a moment. And we want to be careful here. But I think we do need to note two specific things regarding faith's approval. And I want to do so by offering them in the negative. That is, what it does not mean and then kind of come alongside and fill out what is more a positive definition or meaning of approval. So, number one, about the large piece, here now we're filling in the smaller pieces regarding the large piece of faith's commendation or approval. The fact that the saints, by faith, received a commendation. Number one, this does not mean, number one, this does not mean that faith is a meritorious work. I hope you appreciate that to recognize it is important that we handle this with care. Lest we make faith a work. What do I mean? That is, faith is not a virtue. 
whereby the saints of old, please, please, please key in on this with me, and, and, and I'll summarize at the end how this makes applicational difference. It makes all the difference in the world. Because right, you, you just read that by it, by their faith, they received the commendation, which then draws you in to perhaps think that faith is a virtue, whereby the saints of old, having used it properly and invested it with such keen insight at the right time, with the right attitude, drew God's favor. thus rendering faith a meritorious work. Read the whole of faith. Look at what they did. Look at what they did. Well, clearly, they drew God's favor. They received the commendation. So is faith a work? And some of us in this room will be like the hall of faith. We'll rightly invest, right at the right time, with the right perspective, with the right outcome, and we will thereby draw God's favor. My answer is no. Faith is not a meritorious work whereby the saints, having invested properly, drew God's favor. Well, then... How does this text work? Let me suggest to each of us, this makes all the difference in the world. Faith is a gift. Well, then make sense of the rest of the text. Faith is a gift whereby as a vessel, the saints of old, did what with it? What, what, what were they doing with it? What are you doing with it? Faith as a gift, whereby as a vessel, here, 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 this vessel, they appropriated what had been provided by God in Christ through promise. They appropriated what had been provided. They did not meritoriously earn by just the right investment at just the right time with just the right response drew God's favor. But they drew God's favor by appropriating what God in Christ had provided And you say, wait a minute, what God in Christ had provided? We're talking about old covenant saints. How are they appropriating what God in Christ provided? Christ didn't come onto the scene yet. How when we start with Abel and we go all the way through this old covenant, how are we here now saying they have appropriated that faith as a vessel? It's not a uh, it is a receiving and a resting in what God has provided in Christ. The key there was through promise. The Old Covenant saint was convinced of the reality that God had promised that was to come in the accomplishments of Christ 
And through that content, that which was promised, the object of that old covenant saints, old covenant saints' faith was the same as ours. What God in Christ would achieve it was not a meritorious work. It was an appropriating, a resting and receiving what God in Christ provided through promise. Remember, that's what we're wrestling with, right? We're hoping that those promises will be made sure, that they will take place. And he's assuring you, didn't they? Didn't Christ come? Didn't he atone? Didn't he rise? Didn't he ascend? The old covenant saint banked on that to be true. Thereby, appropriating what had been promised, received their commendation. It is not a meritorious work. Secondly, faith is not a meritorious work. And this does not mean the fact that saints received commendation by it. Number two, does not mean that faith is the source of justification. This is the last one for this morning. As we tackle this last piece of what verse 2 is not telling us. Right? Note carefully the text. Look at verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of old, that is the old covenant saints that he's about to rehearse, by faith they received their commendation. Notice the text very carefully. Faith did not pronounce the approval. Do you see that? Faith itself is not what pronounces an approval. You say, what, what, what do you mean? The statement of approval or commendation placed or pronounced upon the old covenant saint is not sourced or was not sourced in faith. That is, faith as a vessel appropriating, resting, and receiving what God and Christ has accomplished. Faith as a vessel cannot turn and make a pronouncement. Faith is not that which justifies. God is the one who justifies. Right? So, by it, they received. From who? Who gave the pronouncement of approval? Who gave the commendation to the saint who appropriated all that he had said and revealed? Who pronounced it? Faith? No. God pronounced it. Faith is not that which justifies. God justifies. So, I know you're all wondering, so, what does that mean then? It's wonderful, and we'll see it fleshed out through the rest of this text as we conclude our time this morning. We will see it for the next 30 weeks. No, the study will go shorter than that, chapter 11. 
So? Why, why take the time? Why, why give the headache? I'm parsing out if faith justifies me or if God justifies me by my faith. Why, why parse that out? Because you're going to see it again and 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 again in the testimony of the Old Covenant saints, and it's true about you also and me. That faith wavers. It is beset by weakness. Clouds appear and doubt arises. And if you think that it is your faith that justifies you, there will be turmoil. If your anchor point is your faith and not God who justifies you, then there will be great and severe doubt. But if you remember that God justifies you, not your faith, you recognize this truth and you'll see it again and again and again and again. A weak faith. Please hear. A weak faith clings to a strong Lord. He is the object. He is who justifies. He is who will cause you to endure. That's what chapter 11 is about. That He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What justified them is what justifies you. And it is God not the quality or quantity of your faith in a given hour. But even a weak faith clings to a strong Lord. Praise His name. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that You would strengthen our faith as we recognize that it is beset by weakness, that it is less